Hello and welcome back to the Deutheology Podcast, this episode of Chartology 101. I'm your host, Ken Chipchase. I'd like to begin by reading a brief story for you. It goes like this. Once I saw a guy on a bridge about to jump and I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? And he said, yes. So I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? And he said, I'm a Christian. I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. And I said, me too. What franchise? And he said, Baptist. I said, me too. A Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? And he said, Northern Baptist. And I said, so am I. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? And he said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. And I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? And he said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. So I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him over. That joke was once voted as one of the funniest jokes, funniest of all religious jokes, and it makes me chuckle. There's, there's, there's some funny things to it, but, but what is it that makes it funny? Why is that a funny thing? And obviously there's some absurdity to it, you know, going through all these things. I think there's also though a, a partial painful truth in there uh, that we can act like this perhaps more often than we would like care to admit as believers. In the, in the first episode, or I guess in the last episode, uh, we looked at the biblical basis uh, for the primary column. Is the primary column biblically warranted? This, where we have this chart and we're looking at these different categories. Well, are those categories biblically warranted? And we talked about the primary column in the last episode. As far as I am aware, most believers uh, agree that the primary column is a thing. And they have no problems with the concepts of, of, of primary doctrine. We all agree that, yes, there is primary doctrine. Anyone who believes anything is going to believe that their beliefs are, are important. What about secondary doctrine? Admittedly, not only the existence of the secondary category, but also the content of that category is probably one of the more contentious points of debate in discussions about theological triage or doctrinal taxonomy. How do we think through the questions of what belongs in the category? How do we think through, how do we define the category? Well, in this episode, my aim is to examine some biblical texts that would lead us to conclude that the secondary category is a legitimate biblical category— and then also try to give us some principles and understanding for how we can discern how something fits into the secondary column rather than the primary or even the third column that we will discuss in future episodes. So stick around and we will do some theology together. Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about his word. I just realized something. He wasn't sleeping on a pillow. He was sleeping on purpose. Something to say I think is important but not essential would be like the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, oh, wow. Okay. And I hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. Okay. The title of my sermon tonight is Why Church Nurseries Are Unscriptural and Wrong. And so that's why I have a baby on my hip right here. There is a level of anointing that I believe is going to invade your homes, invade your sight, invade your senses. Um, that's going to, I literally feel that chains are going to break off of you. Do you think I'm wrong? Yeah. 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 Yay! So am I a bad guy for saying you're wrong? Yeah. I am? Yeah. <laughs> That's not fair. 
Hey, by the way, you are a slave. If you're not a slave of Christ, you're a slave of sin. You aren't free. Choose your master. Give us some men who know the truth. All right, welcome back as we begin our examination of a few things. Now, I just want to preface this conversation by noting that as Jeremy and I have discussed at length multiple times the concepts of primary, secondary, tertiary doctrine, etc., we have often noted that the secondary column is perhaps the most difficult to uh, justify on a purely biblical basis. So just letting you know right off the right off the bat that that is the case. We do believe that there are some texts that would lead us to conclude these things. There are some logical arguments that that make a lot of sense that I think are consistent with the the uh, the biblical texts. Uh, but there is there's a reality where uh, there are fewer texts that speak directly to the issue than there would be for primary doctrine or even the doubtful things column that we will examine in the next episode. So I just say that right out of the gate to let you know what to expect and what kind of expectations to have as you listen through this today. But just want to bring up just a couple of texts right now. And I think this, I'm going to start with what I believe is the best and most helpful text in understanding the existence that there has to be this secondary category. Let's remind ourselves of what the primary column is. Primary column is those are the fundamental teachings of Christianity, right? These, these are definitional to Christianity. They transcend hermeneutics. Different people have different hermeneutical processes, which is just a method of interpretation that people bring to the table. And people have different approaches to how they understand, but no matter what approach that they bring, as long as they're recognizing the, uh, the authority of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, and the harmony of Scripture— they're going to come to the same place on the primary issues. So there's all those things that their definitional Christianity scripture is crystal clear about them, that, that anyone who just is, is just willing to look and take an honest look at the text, they're going to have to conclude those things that scripture speaks so directly and so clearly to. And we talked about last time about some of the, the principles and things with that, but we're talking about things like, okay, yeah, man is sinful. Uh, that justification is by faith alone, right? There's These are foundational, those are things related to the gospel, but then there's other things that are also abundantly clear that aren't related directly to the gospel message, and we would consider this to be dogma, things like the Trinity, uh, the bodily return of Christ, you know, what Jesus Christ is going to one day return, uh, different things like that. And then as you get into different practices, ethics and morality, that's these things, there's, there's certain things that the Bible places a high degree of weight on, like our biblical sexuality, right? And so there's, there's a number of things that the Bible is so clear about, and it, or the Scripture could even place salvific weight upon a number of those things, right? If you deny this, or if you're living this way, or, or if you do not reject, if you reject this other thing over here, that you are in danger, your, your soul is in peril. And so there's, there's all sorts of things that the Bible gives that level of weight towards, well, as we come into the secondary column, what we're really dealing with is the issue of, okay, what if we do have different hermeneutics and we're coming to different conclusions about things? 
And so the question really becomes, how do we think through this? And, you know, the consequences of the primary column means that if you are out of bounds in these areas, if you're rejecting or have a different viewpoint on these areas, then you are not embracing historic biblical Christianity. What you're embracing is something different. Well, as we get into the secondary column, we're, we're going to be we're going to say that there's room for disagreement, but still be under the tents, still be under the umbrella of historic biblical Christianity. There's going to be disagreements about theology, or perhaps about some matters of practice that that we look at the Bible and we say, "Hey, the Bible speaks to this," but depending on what our hermeneutical methodology is, we're going to land in different places. But we're not excommunicating one another, and we're not calling one another unbelievers for holding to that position. So I say that as a as a preface, and uh, I think that key point that what I just said is really going to be a key point. These are issues that there's disagreement without a necessity for excommunication or questioning someone's salvation. So this first text I really do believe is the most crucial for helping us understand and see this concept that there is a and this this is. Uh, these issues matter, right? So uh, it's a very important issue, and yet there's a disagreement, but there's not excommunication, there's not a removal from the church. And it's a narrative passage from Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas. They had gone on a missionary journey previously, and if you're familiar with the story of the book of Acts, they had taken uh, uh, Barnabas's cousin, John Mark, with them, and he had abandoned them for, for reasons that the text does not specify. He left them while they were in Pamphylia, and that really bothered Paul. And so from that, we can infer that that John Mark probably didn't leave on legitimate grounds, right? It wasn't like, okay, you know, maybe he heard his mother was sick, and so he was going to care for his mother, or or maybe, you know, there's something that came along that, that it, just, it was just so clear, yes, you need to go back and take care of that. From Paul's perspective, I think it he probably would have said it was a worldly reason. Uh, So we don't know the particulars of that, but as we get into Acts 15, we find that Paul really objects to taking John Mark with him again, and this is where we pick up when they're about to go for another missionary journey, verse 37 of Acts 15. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now, I was just reading from the ESV there, and I'm going to actually switch over to the NESB really quickly because I think there's, a, there's some stronger language that can be used when, it, when we talk about, um, yes, where the ESV says he withdrew from them. That's really kind of, I think that's a softer language. The NESB puts it much more strongly. Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia. Okay, that's 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 a much stronger language. He he had deserted them in Pamphylia. And then verse 39 says, There occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. So we have Paul and Barnabas, they're going separate ways. What's the disagreement there? Most fundamentally, the disagreement is about ministry qualifications. Is John Mark qualified for this ministry position of this missionary journey? Paul says no. He has not proven himself trustworthy or faithful. He had abandoned us in Pamphylia. We tried taking him with us before, and that did not go well. We're not taking him again. We were dependent upon him, and he left us. He abandoned us. 
Whereas John Mark or Barnabas says, yes, I know that that's all true, but John Mark has demonstrated his repentance, and therefore, on the basis of that, we should give him another chance. We we should see if if he will prove himself to be useful again. And and actually, the story ends really beautifully because we see later in uh, when Paul is writing to Timothy, uh, he says, "Send John Mark to me, for he is useful for to me for ministry." And so we find that John Mark has established himself and has. Uh, been, I don't, I don't know exactly what the right word is, but he has, has clearly demonstrated his uh, faithfulness in ministry once again. So the story has a beautiful ending, but but right here in this moment, we don't know about any of that. We just know that there's a disagreement, and it's about ministry qualifications. And that is a disagreement that really matters, right? There's significant implications to that. So for Paul and Barnabas to to go separate ways to say, you know what, we have such a disagreement here that it would be wisest for us to just go separate directions in ministry. That doesn't mean that we're excommunicating one another, right? There's no church discipline that was exercised. There was no, uh, you know, you're not actually a true believer. There's none of that that happened. But they had a disagreement, and they separated over something that really does matter. It was really significant. So that is really the the clearest place that we have in Scripture where there is very clearly a disagreement that we would, I think, safely categorize as a secondary disagreement. These things, this is not a a primary issue in the sense of the the gospel or dogma or other things. No, this this is not something that is that clear. But they had a disagreement, and rather than try to just uh, gloss over it or or rather even... Uh, excommunicating one another, they decided to part ways for the sake of the ministry and unity despite a separation. Okay? So that is the clearest passage. The next passage that uh, there's a few more passages, and this is where I think the case gets weaker for establishing the concept of secondary doctrine because I think most people who would examine these texts would probably say, that what is being described as the disagreement within these texts is not as significant as the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. In fact, some of these other texts make it seem as though, you know, the disagreement is over things that really do not matter whatsoever at all. And so I just, I grant that and I recognize that, but I think it does help us think intentionally about the concept of how do we handle disagreements within the body when, and are there different weights and measures of doctrine? And I think these texts are going to demonstrate that doctrine and or practice, I should add. So in Philippians chapter 4, we find uh, Paul speaking, and he writes about two women who had some level of disagreement. And again, we don't know what the disagreement was about. But he writes, I urge Iodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. And, and other translations say to agree in the Lord. We don't know what their disagreement was, but Paul was urging them to unity despite their disagreement. I don't believe there was a sin issue at play. Paul is not shy about calling out sin, uh, but in this context, he didn't do that. He just said, just agree in the Lord. Uh, I don't believe there was heresy at play. If, if there was, if there was a primary doctrine at play, Paul, again, is not shy about addressing those things. He would have addressed that, but he didn't. He just said, look, just agree in the Lord, and then he says to, uh, he says, indeed, true companion, and he's talking about another individual within the church there, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So he's urging this other man to help them in their disagreement to just move on together. They've had a disagreement, and they can move on. 
The reason why some might object to this passage for a secondary support is because we don't know the nature of the disagreement. It could have been maybe they just disagreed about the color of the carpet, you know, like, like okay, they just disagreed about that. Maybe there was a personal offense that w- or a non-sin personal offense that was caused that was causing friction within the relationship. We don't know. But I do think it helps us see that not all disagreements and not all things have to result in excommunication and uh, a removal from the church. And I'm just going to acknowledge if you hear a little sound in the background right now, there is uh, neighbors are mowing the lawn right now. And this is the only opportunity I have to record. So uh, you just get to enjoy that in the background. If you can hear it, I don't even know if you can. The next text uh, we find in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and this is, again, another interesting context where there are disagreements that have cropped up within the church, and Paul is urging the believers to pursue unity and to not fight about things that don't matter. So, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. But be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I find there's an interesting uh, kind of dichotomy there. There's an interesting uh, thing going on there where you've got both ends of the spectrum. On the one hand, there's things that are not helpful. You're, you're fighting about things that don't matter. We don't need to do that. But on the other hand, we need to make sure we're being very diligent to understand the word of God and handle the word of God rightly. Skip down to verse 23, we find a similar thing, but avoid foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Again, very interesting. There there are some things that are foolish and ignorant speculations, they, they produce quarrels. They're not helpful. They're not beneficial for the church. The Lord's bondservant, the Lord's uh, servant, uh, the Lord's uh, slave, his, his, uh, his ministers can't be drawn into those things. They're not helpful. But rather, they're, they're, uh, again, there's an interesting thing where it's like, okay, there are some things that are not worth fighting over. They're not worth arguing over. Don't even get involved with those things. But on the contrary, verse 25 says, but we are to correct those who are in opposition so that God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So there's individuals who are at odds with the Christian faith, and so much so that Paul says they're not even believers, and we need to gently correct them, but at the same time, we're not getting caught up in foolish controversies and things that don't matter. So there's there's kind of a, a dual, duality there, where there's primary doctrine that we need to hold on to, that we need to correct people on, that we need to address— but then there's these other things that people are disagreeing at, and I'm sure there's a right and a wrong about whatever the disagreement is. But Paul says they're foolish and they're, they they just don't matter. Don't even don't don't bother. Don't go there. Similarly, we find something similar in Titus chapter three verses nine through eleven. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. So again, we're avoiding these controversies. We're avoiding these arguments about things that just don't matter. They don't have a significant impact upon the Christian faith. They don't have a significant impact upon the Christian life. We don't need to get sucked into those arguments and those debates. He says they're unprofitable and worthless. But notice verse 10 where Paul says you're to reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning. 
Paul, he didn't step into and address the issue of whether what, what was right or wrong about whatever it is that they're arguing about, whether it's a genealogy or dispute about the law. Paul doesn't weigh in and set the record straight on that. The, the instruction and the warning is about those who are factious, those who are causing division within the church. That's the primary issue there. It's that maybe they were arguing about secondary things, but the fact that they were being contentious and factious and divisive about those things is what led Paul to conclude, "Hey, this man is sinning. Uh, that's a that now has elevated this to a primary issue, not because of the issue that's under consideration, that's under debate, but because of the way it's being handled and it's causing division within the church." So Paul says, "No." that guy has no place within the body. You warn him a first time, give him a second warning, third strike, you're out of there. Uh, well, that's actually second strike. Uh, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. No, no, it's the third strike. My bad, I read it wrong. Uh, uh, so three strikes, you're out of there. Uh, he is uh, perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Now, some might say, and I think there's there's a there's a case to be made for this, that, well, that's not really describing secondary doctrine because the secondary doctrines that we typically argue about today matter. They're, they're important issues. Like, who are we going to baptize? Do we baptize babies or do we baptize only believers? Uh, who, how do we think about Calvinism versus Arminianism, dispensationalism versus covenant theology? How do we think about all those things and, and the way that you think through those things, it really does matter. It has an impact upon the Christian life. It has an impact upon our Christian faith. And so when we look at all these issues that Paul is talking about, it seems as though uh, these issues are things that don't matter, that, that don't have that level of impact. And so there might be an objection that might say, hey, you know, this is really isn't talking about that level of things. And I grant that objection. I, I understand that, that's, uh, that that is a a legitimate concern and a legitimate point regarding these passages. But what I do think these passages show is that there is a triage of sorts that has to happen to discern what is of primary importance and what is not of primary importance. There are some things that are worth fighting for, and there are other things that are not. And my point is not to say that all secondary doctrine is not worth fighting over. It's just to recognize at this stage that there is some level of, of weights and measures when it comes to issues of doctrine and issues of clarity on different points. Jesus is going to use the language of, of weightiness in Matthew chapter 23, 23, where he says he's, he's condemning the scribes for how they have observed or failed to observe the law. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are things you should have done without neglecting the others. That's a really significant passage because Jesus, he himself is saying there are some things within the law, some things within the Word of God that carry more weight than other things. Not everything is on the same level. Not everything should be should be viewed in through the same lens. And, and Jesus is going to say, look, justice, mercy, faithfulness, those are the weightier matters of the law. And you're over here so focused on your tithing, on your little spices that you're using to, to, to flavor your food that you're neglecting the most important thing. No, you actually should have paid attention to all of it. So there is, there, and, and he uses the language of weightier. These are the weightier provisions of the law. 
And so that, I think, helps us understand as well that, okay, as we look at different doctrines, as we look at different theologies, there are some things that Scripture places more weight upon and others less so. The things that Scripture places more weight and is more clear about, those things are primary. The things that are uh, do not carry as much weight or are less clear or left to our—we're trying to discern what is right based on our interpretive grid, those things are rightly said to be secondary. Which really is is really just kind of a logical extension of the concept of the primary column. We looked at primary doctrine in our last chartology episode, and it was to me it was abundantly clear that the primary column exists as a category within Scripture. Well, by necessary consequence, if primary doctrine exists, then secondary doctrine by necessity has to exist, or else it doesn't do any good to label anything as primary. If there is only primary doctrine, you don't have primary doctrine; you just have doctrine. In order to say, hey, these are things of first importance, it necessarily implies that there are other things that do not rise to that same level of importance. Uh, so we just need to recognize that that is a biblical category in that way, and uh, we will be served to remember that. With that, I want to take us through a couple of concepts of the chart and, and, and get into this issue of hermeneutics a little bit more, because the question should be raised, where do our disagreements even come from in the first place, and how do we think through those things? So up on the screen, if you're watching on YouTube, I do have an image of the chart, and you're going to be reading through some of the things there. If you're listening on a podcast, you can access the chart at dotheology.com slash chart, and it's available as a free PDF download there, color, black and white and in a couple other languages as well. So praising God for that. Secondary doctrine, and on the chart here, it says it's convictions that affect ministry with others. So we think of Paul and Barnabas. Uh, they had a disagreement, and it changed how they interacted with one another in ministry. That's, that's the secondary column. It, it does affect ministry with others. The definition that we have on the chart is this. These issues are areas of disagreement among Christians, and the interpretation depends on hermeneutics. These are rooted in church history and at times will result in denominational divides. Few things that it's going to be have to perhaps spend a little bit of time discussing these. Uh, these are issues of disagreement among Christians. Where do those disagreements come from? How is it that two believers looking at the same Bible can come to different conclusions about what the text is communicating? Last time we talked about primary doctrine and how there is agreement on those things, or there should be agreement on those things because of how clear Scripture is. Well, when we come into the secondary column, some of these things are a lot less clear than the issues in the primary column. And so how we discern and how we interpret a given text is really going to depend upon our hermeneutical methodology, our method of interpretation for how we're approaching the Scriptures. And so that's where on the chart it says, disagreements among Christians, the, the interpretation depends on hermeneutics. I myself use a, what I hope is a consistent grammatical historical hermeneutic. Sometimes it's called a literal or a normal hermeneutic. There are others who bring a redemptive historical hermeneutic or a Christocentric hermeneutic or a TIS, the, the theological interpretation of Scripture method hermeneutic to the table, and they're applying those rubrics and those grids to Scripture as they're trying to read and understand. They're looking through those lenses. We all bring something to the table for how we read the text, and so we want to be intentional and be aware of what those presuppositions and biases are as we bring them to the table. But based on how we read Scripture through those different lenses— we're going to arrive in different places on secondary doctrine. 
it, it's an amazing gift of God that even if we granted those different interpretive methodologies, we're still going to arrive in the same place on primary doctrine, but it is going to lead us in different places in secondary doctrine. Notice the next phrase there says, these are rooted in church history. Some of the theological categories that we have developed over the years as we try to understand Scripture and combat different heresies and different controversies that have existed in the church for since, since the very beginning, uh, a lot of these things were not the topics of conversation by the apostles themselves, right? The apostles were not debating about dispensationalism versus covenant theology. They were all just dispensationalists. Ah, uh, jokes. <laughs> No, in all seriousness, they weren't debating these things. These weren't categories that they had in their minds as they were writing, as they were working through things, as we have later taken Scripture and have tried to understand it and and systematize it and and put things into different categories. Those things developed through church history as we're trying to understand Scripture better and understand how theologies fit together with what everything that God has revealed for us. And we're bringing our hermeneutical methodology to the table to try to accomplish that task. And because we have different interpretive methodologies, we're going to end up in different places, and that is the story of church history for how these things have developed. In the last line of the definition, these will at times result in denominational divides. Not the All of these things don't have to result in denominational divides. You can have some people with different, different, uh, you know, different places on a spectrum of a certain particular doctrine that's in the secondary category and still be members in good standing at the same local church. There are many churches that don't have a stated position on eschatology. There are many churches that don't have a stated position on uh, certain degrees of Calvinism and Arminianism. But there are other churches that do have an emphasis in those areas. And, and so it's left to each local church really to kind of discern what they think is the, the best for their local church and their local body to preserve the unity of their body as far as what they will stipulate, as far as what you must adhere to, to be a member of their local church. But one issue that is probably the most common secondary issue that is going to be in the majority of church doctoral statements or creeds or confessions or whatever they're embracing is the issue of baptism. It's going to result in denominational differences if one person says we can baptize babies and the other person says, no, we should only baptize those who make a credible profession of faith. Even if they agree on 100% of everything else in the realm of doctrine, if that disagreement alone is going to lead them to different churches, because how you do ministry with one another changes based on your convictions in those areas. And so that's why we say these are convictions that affect ministry with others. The principle here is that we are to take a stance on these things, but to keep fellowship with believers who disagree, even though these may result in denominational divides and different, different churches, etc., we can still recognize one another with differences in these areas as brothers and sisters in Christ. It does not have to result in, uh, you know, a excommunication or a questioning of their faith in Christ. And that does not mean that we look down upon these things and say, well, you know, these things are, you know, they're secondary, so we don't need to think, you know, they're not important. And I think that's one of the most common objections that comes against this concept of secondary doctrine. Oh, you're calling something truth that God has revealed unimportant or non-essential. And, and that's where I believe the language of secondary really is so critical. I, I, I don't like using the language of essential versus non-essential. And I understand that people are saying essential for salvation and essential for the gospel versus everything else that's not essential. I don't like that language because I believe that all truth that God has revealed is essential for us. God doesn't reveal 
frivolous things to us that, that we just don't need to think about. We, it doesn't matter, and it just it has no impact upon our lives. No, all truth that God has revealed is important. But is it all of primary importance, or is some of it of secondary importance? And of course, the whole argument here is that there is some that is of secondary importance. But we're not saying be wishy-washy on these things, or don't study these things, or or just kind of ignore and don't get into the debates on these things. We're not saying that. No, take a stance on them. Don't be wishy-washy. But recognize that if we are brothers and sisters adhering to the primary things in the primary column, that we can have disagreement on these things and still fellowship with one another, even if that means our fellowship is going to be limited because it's hard to do ministry with one another based on our convictions. There's one more thing that I'd like to touch on before moving on further down this column and looking at a few more things. But, you know, I mentioned that the reason why disagreements crop up in the first place is because of hermeneutical or exegetical decisions or methodologies that are different from one another. This is really an issue of the clarity of doctrine. And I'm going to make a distinction between the clarity of doctrine and the clarity of Scripture. Jeremy and I did a whole episode on this, so you can dig through the RSS feed to, to find it. Uh, when we start talking about the, the clarity and the harmony and the authority of Scripture, we believe that all Scripture is clear. We can look at the words on the page and understand this is what this passage says. It's sufficiently clear. What is not always as clear is the doctrine that gets formulated from the words on the page. So so how do we understand and how do we fit together the different passages together? How do we synthesize everything that the Bible teaches about this or that topic? How we bring those things together is not always as clear as the words on the page themselves are. So we can look at a passage, and and I can look at—I'm just going to take for, for example. There is crystal clarity about why Jesus came into the world— so I think of a passage, 1 Timothy chapter 1, Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's the reason why he came, all right? And, and that, that, that correlates with so many other passages that speak to that purpose, that he's going to come and save his people from their sins, that, that Jesus came to die to give his life as a ransom for many. Like, there's many passages that correlate with that. So it's like, okay, this is very clear. It's very clear why Jesus came. He didn't just come to give us a good example. He didn't just come to, you know, to uh, whatever other purpose people might posit, just be a good teacher. He came to save sinners. And so we look at that text and we understand, okay, that's very crystal clear. Well, here's something that is not as clear, the rapture. Now, I'm a, I'm a premillennial dispensationalist. I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. I look at passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I see the reality, well, there's the rapture, there's the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the dead in Christ will rise first, we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Like, that's, that's a fact. Like the words on the page, they're very, very clear. Well, everyone, all believers, are going to accept the reality of the concept of the snatching up, but how does that event fit in with the rest of the eschatological timeline, the, the, all the other end times events? How does that fit in? Is it, is it before the rapture? Is it after the rapture? Because guess what? First Thessalonians chapter 4 doesn't say this is explicitly going to happen right before the seven-year tribulational period. It doesn't specify that. We have to try to understand that in connection with a variety of other texts to try to help us fit it into the calendar and how that all fits in. 
And so different people are going to take different positions because they're they're synthesizing the data differently. Yeah, the words on the page, they're clear, but the doctrine is not as clear. And I think every dispensationalist, myself included, is going to have to admit, yes, this is my conviction on this. This is what I believe, but it's not as clear as something like the purpose of Christ's come and his substitutionary sacrifice upon the cross. That is more clear than the issue of the rapture. And so we all have to have to grapple with that, and the result of that, the, the reason why we have these diverging opinions on that is because of our hermeneutical methodology and perhaps some of the presuppositions that we're bringing to the table when it comes to our hermeneutics and our interpretive grid. And so that's how we get our different conclusions, and that's why we have to say, it's a secondary issue. It's not a primary issue. Like if you deny the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, I don't have the freedom to call you a heretic. I affirm the pre-tribulational rapture. You don't have on that basis. Nobody else has the freedom to call me a heretic because it's not a primary issue because it is not as clear as other texts in Scripture, as other doctrines. Scripture never gives it salvific weight. There's a, there's a variety of things that we need to look at and consider the clarity of something for, for how we conclude that it's primary or secondary. So I hope that's helpful. Uh, I feel like I rambled on for a little bit there and, and kind of took some different turns along the way. But but the point, the goal is try to try to wrestle through some of these concepts to make it clear for us about how we should be thinking about the column of secondary doctrine. On our column, we have divided this up between worldview shaping and methodology. And again, this communicates that these issues really do matter. Worldview shaping, it, it really does change how we think about the world, how we interact with others. For example, Calvinism and Arminianism, both of those camps are going to say, hey, like the, the way we think about this issue has a real world effect. It, it affects how we think about the nature of God and the nature of mankind. Like that, that's a significant issue. It's not unimportant. And I would agree with that. It's not, none of these things are unimportant, but they are of secondary importance to the primary issues of the primary column. So worldview shaping versus methodology on the bottom of the chart there, there are things that Scripture commands us to do, and we affirm that those things are crystal clear. We are commanded to baptize. But do we baptize babies or do we baptize adults who have made a credible profession of faith? Well, I know my position, and I'm very convinced of it, and to me it's very sufficiently clear in Scripture, and yet I have to admit that the other that the way that the 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 pedo baptist the baby baptizers arrive at their conclusion i disagree with it and i disagree with the methodology but they are getting to it through a biblical process even if i disagree with the conclusion and so i have to say this is a secondary issue the method of how they do that has to be considered a secondary issue and there's a whole variety of things. And in future weeks, I intend to work point by point. So maybe if I'm just, you know, scratching it, it's like, oh, no, no, talk more about that. You know, uh, I'll get into all of that in future episodes as I plan to go point by point through these and argue for why I believe that this rightly belongs in the secondary column. Because the point is not to, to give an exhaustive list of all doctrines, but by examining each individual doctrine, I hope that, that we'll get to the point where by, that the process of how we arrive at the conclusion that we arrive at will lead us to embrace the principles so that we can do this in other areas of doctrine that's not specifically listed on the chart. The chart isn't intended to be the be-all, end-all, that you'll never need anything else. That's why we have the, the, the line on the bottom. This list are not exhaustive. 
All right, we have to continue to wrestle with things. There's always going to be things that just won't fit on the chart. One final thing, I think I already said this, but one final thing that needs to be addressed is the line that we have across the top of the chart. Primary doctrines should not be violated by other doctrines. These objective truths inform and limit convictions and conscience matters. What that line communicates is this. We recognize that with secondary doctrine, there are extremes that can be run to on either side of a spectrum that are legitimately heretical because they run up against and they deny issues in the primary column. An example of this might be the lordship salvation versus free grace debate. I know there are many uh, brothers on the free grace side of the spectrum that look at some of the things that have been said by people who would identify as on the lordship salvation side of the spectrum and saying, you're introducing works to the gospel. And if that was were a true accusation, and I know the lordship guys would deny that accusation uh, vehemently, uh, but if that were a true accusation, that would be a denial of the gospel, justification by faith alone. And I have to say that there are some things that I've heard some guys say that that really seems to to go strongly in that direction about, you know, sometimes the language that's used is they're front-loading the gospel, they're making you your, uh, you being a you know, good works into your life as a prerequisite for salvation, etc. And I, I struggle with some of that terminology that they use, and I think they would qualify it if pressed, that no, 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 these things don't save you. Uh, but, you know, there's the, some of that language that's used there, and it can be concerning. Well, you can swing the pe- pendulum so far to the other direction to say, well, you know, your life doesn't have to change whatsoever at all. All you have to do is pray a prayer, and you're good to go. Uh, that's that's problematic as well. I think of there's some free grace authors that have said things like, you know, you don't even have to believe much about Jesus at all. All you have to do is believe in him. You don't have to know about what he did for you on the cross. You don't have to know all these things. You just have to believe in Jesus. Well, is that what Scripture tells us? Is that what Scripture tells us about what we need to know in order to believe? We, act, we, we do have to know what it is that we're placing our faith in, I do believe, uh, in order to, to receive salvation. So you, there are extremes of this. And again, I think there's a lot of free grace brothers who do not go that direction. They do not uh, go that far. Uh, they, they would qualify things quite a bit differently. And so what you end up with is there's a, there's a spectrum of a lordship free grace spectrum, and, and there are far edges where if individuals were to go there— it it would deny primary doctrine. It would it would deny things that are fundamental and essential. And I, again, I use the word essential. And I don't want to do that, but fundamental to the Christian faith. But within certain boundaries, I could still recognize everyone within certain parameters as brothers and sisters in Christ, even if I have disagreements with them on these issues. And so I think that is an example of how uh, things can go too far, and we cannot allow our secondary doctrine to override primary doctrine. Primary doctrine limits how far we can go with our secondary convictions. Well, I hope that is helpful for you. That is a a lot of information that I have sought to pack in here. This is much longer than my goal for how long these episodes uh, should go. So that's that's probably where I'm going to have to leave things for today. Uh, again, in future weeks, my goal is to walk through each of these doctrines that we have listed on the chart and explain why we believe that they belong in the column that they have been placed in. 
Uh, but that's not what's next. What's next is an examination of the third column that we have, Conscious Matters. That will be my next episode. And then we'll start working through each of the individual doctrines within each episode or each uh, column, rather. And my goal is one issue per episode, which means there's going to be a lot of episodes, got a lot of work to do, a lot of things going forward. I do hope that's helpful. If this raises questions or if there's still things that, man, Ken, you know, you really weren't as clear as you could have been on this issue. I'd like you to talk more about this or that or the other thing. Let me know. Reach out. Show at dotheology.com. You can email me there. Find me on Twitter. I'm trying to be a little bit more active on Twitter these days, uh, but it's kind of hit or miss. But I, I will see something if you, um, you know, send me a DM or if you at me, I'll see it there. So you can find me at Ken Chipchase on Twitter. And yeah, I hope that's I hope that it's helpful for you and that it helps you do theology for the glory of God wherever the Lord has you. Oh, there's one other thing that I just want to mention before I sign off here uh, that usually I'm bringing you like a book recommendation or a uh, just a topic of interest that's been mulling around in my mind. And I've got a list of topics that I'm just kind of itching to kind of get to. I'm not doing that today just because of how long this episode has ended up being. This is a little bit beyond what my my target length is for episodes. Uh, but in future times, I do hope to begin to get into those, especially I think once I start getting into the individual doctrines, uh, I don't think those episodes will have to be, you know, this one's going to be over 45 minutes, it looks like. Those episodes don't have to be that long because it's just an examination of the text and why it belongs in the column that it's placed in. And so then I hope I'll be able to get into more book recommendations and other topics of interest that I, I think will be helpful and interesting for you to think through. So... Look forward to getting into some of that with you in the future as well. Well, I've, uh, I pseudo-signed off the first time. Well, this time it is for real. Go do theology for the glory of God.